Well, we're going to start with uh, Matthew 12 now. So let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, we come to you, Father, in all our weakness and all our desire to know you and your Son. We pray, Father, that you will open our eyes to how he really is, how he really was, and how he ever shall always be. Father, our whole lives are staked upon your Son, and therefore and thereby upon you. And we pray, Father, that you will recognize that, and that you will perceive and recognize our desire to wholly devote ourselves to him, that he might be the light of our world, that in him we might understand all that goes on in our lives and in the world around us. We pray, Father, that we might walk as he walked, that we might see as he saw, and that we might hope and think as he did. Father, please be with us in our endeavor. For his sake. Amen. Okay, so Matthew 12, at that time, verse 1, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungry, they began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. Well, the very poor were allowed to do that by the law in in Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 23. They were allowed to do that, and I think there you get an insight into the absolute poverty of Jesus and and the disciples. And he parallels later the urgent hunger of David and his followers in the time of 1 Samuel 21 with the situation that he was in. Now, it seems that he himself didn't make use of this, uh, this concession in the law because the, the Pharisees focus upon the disciples. Why, verse 2, uh, do your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day? Well, they thought that they were so clever that they'd got him kind of... Uh, in a corner here, because fasting was forbidden on the Sabbath, according to uh, the book of Jubilees, chapter 50, uh, and verse 12, fasting was forbidden, uh, and so you almost, in one sense, had to eat, uh, and yet they considered that what they were doing by, by plucking the, the heads of corn and, and grinding them, that that was work, that that was uh, threshing on the Sabbath. So their petty legalism uh, they thought was enough to to trap Jesus in a way that he he couldn't answer. And they began to do this, and then the the Pharisees come to him. You you can just imagine these guys with sort of binocular vision, watching this group of men passing through a cornfield and noticing what they were doing, how horrible it must have been for the Lord to live under that kind of binocular vision trained upon him from such critical eyes throughout his ministry. Now, what was not lawful was absolutely an obsession with the Pharisees. We read that so many times. It's not lawful that you do this. You're breaking a a law. Incidentally, the parable of Matthew 20, verse 15, I think plays on that, where the generous employer gives out to everybody the same penny a day, and he says, is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my own? This was absolute grace that he was paying the weak and the lazy who'd only worked for one hour the same as what the other guys got. And he says, well, that's lawful. So I think Jesus is is playing there on their own uh, sort of legalism. He's saying it's, it's legal, it's lawful to be gracious. Have you not read, he says, verse 3, what David did when he was hungry and his followers? So he's openly inviting comparison between himself and David. 
and his disciples were the equivalent of David's followers. But David's followers, of course, later became the leaders of Israel. When they were out of the wilderness, who becomes the, the rulers? It's the, you can compare the list of names of the men who followed David in the wilderness and those who then took position in his government. So Jesus is saying that this ragtag group of, of men who are following me, these fishermen, and a lot of them absolutely secular uh, Jews, the people who were not particularly religious people, he's saying, in my new Israel, these are the people who shall be the leaders. And just as it was difficult for the disciples themselves to perceive that, so I think it's difficult for us to really perceive that there is a new and eternal world order that's coming, where you and I, where bus drivers and unemployed people and people with Asperger's and asylum seekers and chain smokers and the rest of them will all be the rulers of God's future eternal kingdom. And we think, well, that can't be so. Isn't it supposed to be for sort of white-faced uh, saints, uh, saintly people? That's exactly the problem the disciples would have had. They would have thought about all this and thought, well, Jesus is implying that we are really the rulers of this new Israel. And, of course, that's what he was implying. And, of course, he goes even further when he says that they ate the showbread, which it was only uh, possible for the, uh, <clears throat> for the priests. So he's implying again, my guys, with a few doubtful women hanging along behind them, these are the new priesthood. These are the priests, so actually it's okay for them to do this. They're doing God's work on the Sabbath day by following me through a cornfield. That absolutely mundane, worldly thing, uh, just, you know, human thing, the Lord is saying, that is actually doing God's service. And by being with me, they are right inside the most holy place. So again and again, he's trying to develop this idea that his followers, that ragtag bunch of men and women, that they were the leaders of this new Israel that he's creating. And you notice how he says to the Pharisees, didn't you ever read? And he says to the illiterate masses, you have heard that it was said by them of old time. So then, literacy in, in Palestine, it seems, was not at all more than 3%, that the majority of people could not read, the vast majority. And so, have you not read? He's talking to, to the, the Pharisees. And, of course, they had read. This was the point. They spent their whole lives reading and poring over not only every word, but over every letter of the Old Testament. And the Lord is, is of course, challenging them. Have you never, have you never read? Well, they had read, but his point is, you can read and not read. And that is quite a challenge, is it not, to our own Bible reading. You can read and not read. That's, that's the whole problem. <clears throat> now, the, the Jews taught, the Pharisees taught, that temple service does take precedence over, over the Sabbath. And so, by justifying the disciples, he's saying that they really are about the work of the temple. But just hanging around with him was actually being in the temple, doing the work of the temple, and being as priests. <clears throat> now, within the law of Moses, there are 
principles and commandments that are in conflict. And the more you read and study the law of Moses, the more I think you see that. But there are uh, cases where you have to break one commandment to keep another. That is inevitable, actually, within any legal system. But it is also so within the law of Moses. And Jesus brings out this, this point uh, when he talks about how the, the, the priests... Uh, in the temple, verse 5, profane the Sabbath. You know, that's a pretty strong word he uses. It's not just break a Sabbath, but to profane it. They desecrate it. And he uses that strong word, I think, to, to just highlight the, 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 the conflict but, that there was. That, okay, you mustn't work on the law, uh, on the Sabbath, but the, <clears throat> the, the priests worked harder on the Sabbath than on any other day. Now, the fact that God's law was like that, and in a sense is like that, I think is in order to make us think. It's in order to actually lead us away from legalistic obedience. It would be far too simplistic to say that there's 613 commands of the law of Moses, you've just got to keep them all, and everything shall be good. What the Lord is saying is that, no, actually within that legal code, there are some contradictions whereby you've got to break one principle to keep another, break one law to keep another. And he, he makes that point, I think, to show that God is not looking for legalistic obedience, otherwise he would not have arranged it that way. He did it that way so that people would think and not just automatically obey. And overriding all of all of this is human need. What is needed for people? These men were hungry. David's men were hungry. The disciples of Jesus were hungry. But therefore, in response to basic human need, it is okay to break a law. Of course, it's got to be basic human need. I'm not saying that it's okay to go and steal because you consider it's your basic human right to... Uh, to, to have a car or, or whatever. It, but no, I, I'm, I'm not saying that, 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 that that's the case. I'm looking just at how Jesus generally is, is reasoning here. <clears throat> he says, if you had really read, have you never read? Well, they had read physically. Then, he says, you would have known what this means, verse 7, that I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now, <clears throat> it's one thing to read the Bible. And it's one thing to be into what is called Biblicism, to say, ah, oh, yes, you must read the Bible, must base everything on the Bible, and sort of pick up proof texts to prove this position, this piece of theology, or, or that, or whatever. But it is another thing to know what it means. And he says, if you had known what it means, that I will have mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, verse 7. Well, when he says the guiltless, he could be referring to the disciples. He could be saying they were innocent. Um, and yet, the very words condemned guiltless are used elsewhere about what the Jews did to Jesus. And it's as if he sees the whole thing stretching out, how it's going to end up with the crucifixion, and he's saying that you have already done that. And the reason you did it was because you didn't really read and you didn't get what it really meant. Now, without sort of uh, glorifying intellectualism or, or the need for correct interpretation, etc., it is also true that on one level, what the Jews did was, in crucifying Jesus, condemning the guiltless, 
was because they didn't get what it meant. They did not understand because they did not want to understand what they had read. And so in that sense, more than any, anything else, you, you see the importance in one sense of interpretation. It's easy to say, ah, it doesn't matter, just read the Bible and yeah, make of it what you will. These guys read the Bible, they made of it what they wanted, and they crucified Jesus because of it. People have used the Bible to justify all kind of crazy things. <clears throat> we, we've surely all had plenty of experience of that. So reading the Bible as simply your eyes reading black text on white paper or on a, on a screen or whatever is not a, of itself enough. There must be an element there of interpretation that is important. <clears throat> I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from Hosea 6 verse 6. And in the, in the Hebrew there's a word play. I will, I desire mercy. It is what the Hebrew says. And the Hebrew for desire and mercy or grace are very similar. And that's because the passionate desire of God is for grace. He has a passion about grace. That's what he wanted. And I think that <clears throat> we have to keep remembering that these Pharisees have been watching the disciples from a distance with, as it were, binocular vision, crossing a, a cornfield and thinking, yeah, they're picking those heads of corn, and they're grinding them, and then they run up to them and stop them, try to. And the Lord says, but Hosea 6 verse 6, if you ever really read it, says that God wants grace and not sacrifice. I think what he's saying is that if you have God's passion about grace, you will not be a nitpicker looking with binocular vision of other people, saying, ah, oh, but they're not doing this right, that is not in accordance with the Bible, uh, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> and being generally critical in attitude. And this is, I'm afraid, what so many apparently Bible-based groups turn into. That they become hypercritical of others, it becomes very, very uh, nitpicking uh, against other people. And this is where a lot of small-time Protestant communities have just fallen into uh, a very, very self-critical and negative spirit because they don't read and understand the meaning of God's passion for mercy and, and grace rather than sacrifice. And incidentally, if you read on in Hosea 6 to verse 8, <clears throat> it says that the company of priests have murdered in the way by consent. Now, clearly the Lord had that in mind in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But he twists it because it's not the priests who murder or, or beat people up along the road. It was the thieves. It was the priest who came, saw the human need and walked by on the other side. So I think the Lord is saying, in, in, in his allusion to Hosea 6 verse 8, that actually to do nothing, indifference, is actually as bad as beating somebody up on the road. Well, he says another reason, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Or on the Sabbath, it literally it is the Son of Man is the Lord the Sabbath. He's juxtaposing, that is, he's putting together his humanity, Son of Man, and his utter lordship. And he loves to do this. And it is done many times in the Bible. Uh, starting, I, I guess, with Daniel 7, the, the vision of the Son of Man. 
that the Son of Man is actually a title of the Lord in glory. And there is that connection between his humanity and his glory. This is why he is going to judge people at the last day, because he is the Son of Man. So then, <clears throat> it was exactly because he was human that he has been so highly exalted, as Philippians 2 makes clear. And so the very basis of his lordship and all the very high language that is used about the Lord, uh, in the New Testament especially, is because he was of our nature. And this is why, to simplistically say that Jesus is God in the Trinitarian sense, this is missing, missing the point that it was exactly because he was not God. It was exactly because he was of our human nature that he has been exalted <clears throat> to this high position. Not very God of very gods. That's just not in the Bible. It's not biblical. That's a meaningless bit of theological junk. Uh, Jesus was exalted to be Lord. And that means that he is a master over us. And it was all on the basis that he was not like that. This huge uh, pattern of a uh, path of growth that there was in the Lord is, of course, our pattern as well. What man of you, <clears throat> verse 11, shall have one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold on it and lift it out? He says this in the context um, <clears throat> of the man, verse 10, who had his hand withered. For Jesus, that man was his sheep, his one sheep. And when it says... Will he not lay hold on it? Why is there that little thing added? I think it's because it's the same word used about how Jesus touched people. And then he lifted them up. So many times in the healing miracles, uh, generally, uh, it's said, for example, the transfiguration, he, he touched the disciples, he lifted them up, and he comes down from the mount of the transfiguration, uh, and there's the, the epileptic child, he touches him, he lifts him up, uh, and so the thing continues so often in the gospel records. So the Lord is saying, every one of my healings is because it's urgent and because they are my sheep. And I think you see that the, the motive for his healing of people was not simply to do good for the sake of doing good. It was because he wanted ultimately to lift those people up and to heal them spiritually. He's saying that this man who I'm going to cure uh, is like a sheep, and I want to, uh, as his shepherd, to touch him and to lift him up. And that's all full of spiritual uh, uh, meaning there. The point here, though, is of urgency, because the disciples are saying, uh, the Pharisees are saying, look, the guy's got a withered hand. He can wait, can he not? He's had a withered hand for years. Can't he wait until tomorrow? Why have you got to do it right now? Can't you just wait at least till sundown, till Sabbath is over? Of course, Jesus could have done. But he's talking as if this is a matter of urgency. And they're saying, but it's not a matter of urgency. And Jesus is saying, it is a matter of urgency. And I'm going to run and help this man, just like you would run to pick your sheep up out of the pit on the Sabbath. Now, <clears throat> there is an urgency that we should feel about doing God's work and working for God's people. And I think you see this in the Acts of the Apostles, when people are 
baptized so quickly. There, there is a, a beating sort of urgency. And in the Gospels you see it, especially in the Gospel of Mark, all these words like immediately, suddenly, straight away. It's almost breathless reading the first few chapters of Mark, how, how the Lord is, is acting and others are acting very quickly. There's an urgency about uh, our work for him. I was teaching not long ago uh, a, a seminar about how we should be preaching and talking about our Kellings work and how we get uh, replies in all the time and, and how one should respond to them. And I, said, I quoted this and I said, there should be an immediacy of response, an immediate turnaround. You get an email from a guy uh, about the gospel, etc. Reply as quick as you can. There is a, a sense of, ah, oh, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll do it next week, whatever. No, quick response, urgency. And it's that urgency that you see here in, in the Lord about curing this man, who he could have left until the next day. Verse 12, Therefore it is lawful, he says, to do well on the Sabbath days. Now, in Mark's record, that is... Um, sort of uh, developed a bit in Mark 3 verse 4, where he says that <clears throat> if he had not performed the miracle, it would have been a case of doing evil or killing on the Sabbath day. He says to them there, according to Mark, uh, is it better uh, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill on the Sabbath day? So what he's saying is that by not doing anything, it would have been the same as murder. It would have been the same as doing evil. And that is very challenging, because so many of our failures are not in that we sort of uh, steal ourselves to, to go out and do sin. So many of our failures are because uh, we, unfortunately, uh, put something off and don't do something. We omit to do something. Now, if ever you want evidence that Sin of omission is the same as sin of commission. You have it here, at least in, in Mark's comment on this, on this, uh, at this point, that Jesus says that to not heal that, that person would have been to do evil, would have been to kill. So then, by omitting, we are doing evil. And that's a powerful thing, because it cuts right into what I would call cultural Christianity whereby people have been raised in a certain way and they accept a set of theology to get baptized, make a commitment to, to the church, uh, and they, can, they just coast along in their lives. And apparently not committing anything too bad. And yet, they can be omitting a huge amount. And we can be, I should say. Uh, and it is that sin of omission which I, I think is, is absolutely crucial to perceive. And I think it also opens a window into the nature of the perfection of the Lord Jesus. It wasn't that he just kept himself back from messing up. That would be a very negative way of looking at it. He did not omit to do anything he should have done. And that is, I think, uh, particularly powerful, that, that the whole nature of his perfection was such that he did not omit to do any act of righteousness. And again, he's, he's talking in terms of 
human need. He's saying, okay, you can have all your laws there on one hand, but you have human need and the urgency of dealing with human need on the other side. Just like earlier we saw about uh, eating corn or grinding corn on the Sabbath if you are hungry. The question is not, then, I think the Lord is saying, the question is not uh, how do we legalistically interpret this particular law. The question is, what is human need and how can I respond to that human need? What is really needed by, by people? And it seems to me that that has got to be the overarching principle in our decision-making as well. What is best for people? And so often you, you see people caught up in this whole issue of deciding with whom they should fellowship, etc., that, well, if we have him to break bread, or if we, we fellowship with her, then we're going to get beat up by them, and, and all this kind of thing. No, actually these decisions are not difficult. When you think of what is best for that person, and when you realize that by omitting, by omitting love, fellowship, kindness to another person, it is as if you are murdering and as if you are killing. That's clearly the, the teaching that comes out of, of here, and it's extremely important that we grasp that, that life is not about an external conformity to a plus or minus decent life as the world would consider it. Not drinking too much, uh, not doing drugs, not, uh, <clears throat> not having affairs, not, uh, I don't know, not doing the grosser things that, that people, people are seen as, uh, as doing in the world, but going to church once, twice a week, um, just being a basically sort of reasonably nice, upbeat kind of person. Yeah. You can do all that and be omitting to do so much that it is the same as if you are murdering or killing. This is the scary thing for all of us that's coming out of this. <clears throat> so then, verse 14, the disciple, the, the Pharisees go out and hold a counsel against him how they might destroy him. So many times you see that. But when grace is shown, then there is a counter-reaction against that grace. You see it again in, in the parable, um, uh, in Matthew 20, verse 15, where the Lord shows his grace by giving the penny a day to people who only worked for one hour. There were people angry about that. And the Lord says, is your eye evil? Or is it, as the Greek implies, is your eye becoming evil because I am good? So many times you see that, both in the Bible and in church life, in life generally, that when grace, real grace, is shown, there is a very nasty counter-reaction, particularly by religious people. That's very common. And we've got to make sure that we are on the side of those who show grace, and not on the side of those who make this nasty counter-reaction. Well, the Lord then, verse 15, withdrew himself from thence. And I've counted up about six times in the Gospels where we read of this, of the Lord withdrawing from uh, situations. Now, when you look at the, the Gospel records, they are covering three and a half years, and yet it has rightly been observed that they are really uh, passion narratives with extended introductions. In other words, their focus is so much on the cross and upon the last week or uh, 
month or so of the Lord's life, that that takes up, in percentage terms of the text, most of them, particularly the Gospel of John. And the rest of it is covering, what, three and a half years almost, nearly three and a half years, uh, with, okay, there's quite a bit said about the Lord's birth, but when you actually look at his ministry, there's very little actually said about it in percentage terms compared to, you know, to, to the length of time. There are some days, just one period of 24 hours, which are recorded in very great detail. You can work through the Gospels and see that. And you have a lot of information about what happened on one particular day. But as far as I can count up, you don't have information about any more than about 20 days, 20 separate days in the Lord's life, during those three and a half years uh, in the Gospels. So what was he doing the rest of the time? I think you, you can make a fair case that he was not going around doing miracles all the time, uh, and that things like the, the day when he feeds the 5,000, you know, when uh, he, he's uh, healing a whole load of people, feeding thousands of people, etc. We'd be mistaken if we thought that that was happening every single day, or pretty well every day. If that level of miracle was going on, it would seem inevitable that the crowds would have grabbed him against his will and propelled him uh, forward to be their king uh, and to rise up against Rome, etc. So I don't think that his ministry was full of the same tempo and intensity of miracle and healing uh, and feeding, etc., which you see going on in some days that are recorded in the Gospel records. So this withdrawing away is therefore quite common. And I think you can only conclude then that his decision was to focus upon the twelve. They were the ones who are described as having continually been with him. So he decided to focus upon them. That was his focus, upon them. And he, as it were, came out from that fellowship with them to teach the crowds to do miracles, etc., to, especially in the earlier part of his ministry, to try to persuade Israel of himself. In Matthew 11, verse 20, we read, and you can just turn back a page, he began to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done because they repented not. And he upbraids uh, Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and I believe in the other, yes, uh, 23, Capernaum. So, he, wherein most of his mighty works were done, the Greek means the majority. The majority of his miracles were done in three little fishing villages, Chorazin, uh, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. That's where the majority of his healing was done, in those three villages, which were the hometowns, of course, of his disciples. He really, I think, emphasized that he wanted his, those 12 disciples to build up house churches, groups of domestic believers within their own domestic kind of set up back in their home villages. Whether that worked out or not, I don't know, but it's certainly his policy of picking 12 and deciding to focus on them and work on them so that after his death they would continue the, the work. That is, I think that, that was the way to go, obviously, because it paid off. So the impression that we could get from a cursory reading of the Gospels that the Lord was running around, healing people, feeding people, this sort of stuff every day, 
that does not have a biblical support. As I say, you've got, I don't think, more than 20 days recorded uh, in his ministry outside of the, uh, the final week. He charged them, verse 16, that they should not make him known. Well, this was multifactorial, I guess, why he did this, but I think it's uh, partly because of this desire to, uh, to focus upon the twelve. That it might be fulfilled that was spoken by Isaiah, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen. And I wonder if the focus is on behold. They were to look to him in faith, to behold him, rather than get, just get caught up with, doing the miracle, with uh, seeing miracles. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved and whom my soul is well pleased. He will show justice to the Gentiles. They were to observe these things rather than just get caught up in the, the benefit of, of them. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. So what I think the Lord is saying is, because it is said about me that I will be like this, then all those who are in me are to be the same. You also are to uh, not lift up your voice in the streets. You are also not to strive, not to cry, etc. In 2 Timothy 2.24, Paul says the same, where he says, The servant of the Lord must not strive. Now, the Old Testament servant of the Lord in the Isaiah's servant songs, was primarily Israel. But because they failed, it, all, all those prophecies became true, ultimately, of, of the Lord Jesus. So then, the servant is Jesus personally, but it is also the Israel of God. It is the, the community of, of God's people. And so, what I think he's saying then, is that whatever is written in the servant songs about my servant is to be true of us. If the servant is not to strive, we also are not to strive. Everything that is true about the Lord Jesus has to become true of us personally. And this is a, a huge challenge. Because we are in him. This is the whole meaning of being brothers and sisters in Christ. That all that is true of him is to be true of us. That's why when Paul turns to the Gentiles, he says, Has not the Lord commanded us, Paul and Barnabas, uh, saying, and then he quotes from a servant song, that my servant shall be a light to the Gentiles. Well, you could argue that it was not a specific command to Paul and Barnabas. The commandment is to us, in that if we are in Christ, then all that is true of him is to become true of us. That is uh, absolutely challenging. It means that being in Christ cannot be passive. We are to live out in practice the status that we have been given in him. If we are counted by God, according to Paul's explanation in Romans, if we're counted by God as being Jesus, then we should get on and consciously try to be him. And this is what we're doing here in, the, in these studies, sorting out who he was and how he was, so that we might be like that. Verse 20, A bruised reed he will not break, smoking flax he will not quench, until he sends forth judgment unto victory. Well, 
I think that uh, this is a game of carrying on um, an allusion to uh, to what's there in Isaiah 42, verse 3, an allusion to the candlestick. Uh, the reed, I would say, is referring to the, the shaft or the stem, uh, and the flax is talking about the wick. Now, this candlestick that is envisaged here is not working well. It's very smoky. It's giving out a bad uh, smoke, and it's not giving out much light. But he's not going to break it. Destroy it, break it in pieces is what it means. Same word used about the destruction of, of the wicked of the last day. He's not going to do this until he sends forth judgment unto victory. So his patience with the candlestick, which is very dysfunctional and doesn't really work and doesn't give out much light and gives out a bad smell and a lot of smoke, he's going to be patient with this right to the end. Now, the candlestick is clearly a symbol of the people of God. You get that particularly in, in the beginning of Revelation, that the candlestick is, is the church. So no matter how dysfunctional the, the system of God's people is, he is going to be patient with it right up to the end. He is not going to quench it. He's not going to quench that smoking flax if there's a little bit of a few embers still there. Time and again, people get up and go because they say, oh, I can't stick the church. I can't stick this. You know what? This, that, and the other happens. You know what? It's not really much of a light stand. You know what? It's all just tradition, blah, blah. Absolutely right. And the Lord recognizes that. And yet he says that he's not going to quench it. While there is a little bit of light there, a little bit of fire, a few embers, he's going to try and try to fan that into life. And that then should be our attitude. So then they then accuse him of being in league with Beelzebub. He does this... Uh, miracle, and then verse 24, this fellow doesn't cast out demons but by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. Now, he then, in the same context, goes on to, to really say, verse 31, that if you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit, you have never forgiveness. You can't be forgiven. What's going on here? Jesus was doing good works, and they were saying, this is from uh, Satan. They could not deny that this man from Nazareth was in fact doing miracles, that he was clearly in touch with some uh, superhuman power. That much was clear. But the question was then, where's this power from? And in their worldview, it was either from God or from Satan. And so they decided it's from Satan. Because the alternative was to say, well, it must be from God, so he must be God's man and we should believe him. And so really, his miracles pushed them really into this position where no longer could anyone be ambivalent. No one could really shrug their shoulders and say, I don't know what to make of Jesus. The miracles were so clear that everyone had to sit up and take uh, a note of them and to say, yes, he has got access to some superhuman, supernatural power. Everybody had to agree that. The question was, where is that power from? 
Now, I think if I were Jesus, I'd have started giving them a lecture based on Isaiah 45 that all power is of God. Your dualistic view of the universe, that power is split between God and Satan, is wrong. But he doesn't. He, as his manner is, he works with them. Okay, if this is what you think. If this is so, then so and so. And if you read through here, uh, this section here, starting in verse 24, so many times he uses the word if, and in Mark's record again, if, 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 if this is so, then. And in, in fact, in Mark, he, it says when he's talking about uh, Beelzebub and that, 27, if I buy Beelzebub, cast out demons, uh, he spoke to them in a parable. Mark says. So the whole uh, thing here about Satan and Beelzebub, etc., it's a huge parable uh, which opens up further throughout the New Testament uh, about Satan. And he says, your children also claim to cast out demons, probably referring to their spiritual children, their disciples. The Jews also claimed to cast out demons, as Josephus records. And so the Lord is saying, if you're saying then that uh, the fact a guy does a miracle, he does good, uh, it means that he's somehow in league with, with Beelzebub, well, what does that say about your followers or your children? And that's why he, he comes to this thing about in verse 31, that a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven. Now notice he doesn't say it can't be repented of, he says it can't be forgiven. Any sin can be repented of. But when you're pushed into this position where you're basically, you have a choice to, to say, yes, Jesus is the Son of God. I believe what he did was supernatural, therefore he must be of God. But you say, well, I, I can't bring myself to do that for the sake of my standing, my pride, etc. Okay, well, let's say he's of Satan. Let's say he's from the other side then. Well, that was blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And the, those people would never have forgiveness while they were in that uh, mentality because they didn't want it. It was as simple as that. And as I often emphasize to people who worry terribly and unnecessarily, I think, about these verses, it doesn't say that repentance is impossible. It's just saying that in this state of mind where these men saw for sure the evidence that Jesus was of God and they said no we don't want to accept that let us say he's from Satan it, with the power of the Holy Spirit uh, doing those miracles right in front of them and the Lord is saying well I'm sorry but uh, you can't be forgiven for that or because you haven't repented because you didn't even ask for it you don't even want it he says in 32 neither in this world neither in the world to come and I think what that means is that our present experience of sin and repentance and forgiveness is not just something that happens as you sit, uh, as you sit in, your, in your house one evening or, or as you're driving along or as you're sitting on a bus and you say, oh God, yeah, I'm really sorry I did so and so, please forgive me. And then you sort of think, yeah, well, okay, play on, right, what am I, uh, what are we cooking for dinner tonight, you know. Uh, you know, that, that little thing that you had there with God, that has got eternal significance. If it's forgiven to you now, it's forgiven to you in the world to come. And with these guys, if it's not forgiven to you now, it will not be forgiven to you in the world to come. In other words, you're not going to be able to come to the day of judgment and sort of 
ah, yeah, just ha have a look through all the stuff that we, we didn't repent of, etc., and straighten it out. Now is the time to do that. That's surely what that is, is saying. Now, Beelzebub, according to uh, First of Kings, was a, a pagan god. And you just notice the way Jesus works. He doesn't read them a lecture about, look here, this is a pagan god. It doesn't even exist. He works with them. Okay, this is how you see it? Okay, now let's take your logic further. Rather than engaging point blank and saying, that's rubbish, there's no Beelzebub. That's a, a pagan god of Ekron. He doesn't do that. And that's, I guess, why the New Testament uses the language of demons, and Jesus himself does use the language. It's not simply that the gospel records uh, use the language of demons to describe the curing of things that we would call epilepsy and uh, mental illness. Jesus himself apparently talks to demons and tells them to come out and all this kind of thing. He was going along with the understandings of the day, even though demons as such did not exist uh, and don't exist in, in the sense that people then believed in them. Jesus, verse 25, knew their thoughts. But it says, verse 24, they said, this fellow doesn't cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons. And Jesus knew their thoughts. Well, it could be that Jesus knew the thoughts that were behind those words, and he addresses them. Or it could be that they said this within their own minds, within their own uh, hearts, and Jesus read what they were thinking. He read their self-talk very clearly. And, of course, he does the same to us, and we all are full of self-talk. That is how human beings operate. It doesn't mean you're crazy that you find yourself talking to yourself. We are full of self-talk, and the Lord knows and listens to that self-talk. And he, he, just back there, verse 25, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. So he's saying that, look, if, uh, if I am on the side of Beelzebub and I'm doing good miracles, that means there's a division in the Beelzebub camp. And sooner or later, then, his kingdom is going to fall. So again, his idea is, even if you believe in this Beelzebub stuff, Look, because of what I'm doing, these great miracles, well, whichever way you want to look at it, it's good news because it means that the whole kingdom of Satan, as you understand it, is falling, is divided, and it's going to fall because a divided kingdom shall definitely fall. And I think, as I say, that that is how he uses this idea of Satan and, and demons in the New Testament, that he begins by recognizing that uh, they have these beliefs, but the sheer magnitude of the miracles he does shows that effectively these things have absolutely no power. That's why when you look at all the incidents of the, the language of demons, it's generally bunched up at the start of the Lord's ministry. But over time in the gospel records, you read of demons less and less, and later in the later New Testament, in the, uh, in the letters uh, and the Acts of the Apostles, you very rarely, not at all, but you, you, you rarely 
read of demons as coming out of people when illness is being, is being cured. There's a few cases, but generally not. The, uh, the distribution of the incidents of, of demon language is very much bunched up at the beginning of the Lord's ministry and it gets less as he goes on. And I think the point is then that over time the magnitude of his miracles simply showed that whether or not these things really exist or not is not an issue because his power is so much greater than them. And I just love the way that he deals with people. I just love the way that he, he walks with them, that he takes their idea and, and takes it further. Rather than uh, sort of a bald, uh, confrontational, you are wrong on that point. Beelzebub is a god of Akron. Uh, there is no Satan in the sense that you believe it. There is no dualistic cosmos where 50% of the power is with God, 50% is with Satan. Your whole thinking is wrong. No, he doesn't. He, he says, okay, fine. Uh, let's take that. Okay, I'm a good man. I, I'm doing good miracles. Uh, but you say I'm in with Beelzebub. All right. That means then that Beelzebub's kingdom is divided. It's going to fall anyway. Your whole uh, myth about Satan and Beelzebub's kingdom and all that. Well, okay, even if that's what you think. The nature of my miracles shows that the whole system is going to collapse anyway. So his logic is is very, very powerful. Uh, whether it was perceived at the moment uh, that he spoke it, I, I don't know. But the point is that all the way through the, this whole theme that we've had so far in Matthew 12, he's saying that human need and God's sensitivity to human need is far, far greater than any legalism and any obedience to, to, to specific uh, commandments. And I, I see the, the argument about Beelzebub really as being directly in line with that. And the great comfort is that this same Jesus was the same yesterday when he was back there in, in Galilee having these discussions. It's the same today. And he shall ever be the same. In all the billions of years, if you like, throughout the utter eternity that we shall know him in his kingdom.